Um, around 15 years ago, in 2006, there was a violent shooting incident which occurred in the Amish community of Nickel Mines in Pennsylvania in the USA. With no prior warning at all, just straight out of the blue, a local man called Charles Roberts, whose job was to deliver uh, milk um, and pick up milk from the, the farms around, he came to this small one-room Amish schoolhouse. He barricaded himself in with the pupils and sadly shot eight out of the ten girls. They were between the ages of six and thirteen and five were killed. Um, and that all happened before he then himself committed suicide in the schoolhouse. Obviously, it was a devastating incident. And while sadly, as you'll be aware, incidents like this do happen from time to time, what is less common is the response from the community that were affected, the Amish community, who are a very traditional group of people, known for their simple living, for their plain dress and for their Christian pacifism. The gunman, Charles Roberts, was 32. He had three children and a wife, and it was later discovered that he had left four separate suicide notes. What a tragedy, a desperately sad situation. And it's really hard to understand how to deal with anything so appalling and so traumatic. And yet, just hours after the shooting, an Amish neighbour was comforting the man's family and extending forgiveness to them. The grandfather of one of these little girls was heard to say, we mustn't think evil of this man. Amish community members visited and comforted Robert's widow and his parents and his parents-in-law. One man even held the gunman's sobbing father in his arms for an hour to comfort him. They also set up a charitable fund for the family and about 30 members of the Amish community attended the gunman's funeral. His widow, Marie Roberts, wrote an open letter thanking the community for their forgiveness, their grace and their mercy. She said, your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Gifts you have given have touched our hearts in a way no words can describe. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and it's changing our world. And for this, we sincerely thank you. Some commentators criticised the response, arguing that it's inappropriate to forgive when no remorse has been expressed, that this kind of attitude risks denying the existence of evil. But for the Amish community, they said that letting go of grudges was a deeply rooted value. They explained that the willingness to forego vengeance doesn't undo the tragedy or pardon the wrong, but it does constitute a first step towards a hopeful future. Now, some people would find this response really shocking or even offensive. I wonder how you or I would respond in such a traumatic situation. I wonder how this situation makes you feel. But I wanted to tell you this story because it illustrates a kind of deep and unexpected compassion, which is the main theme of the Bible book that we're looking at over the next few weeks. You see, today we're starting a new series on the book of Jonah. And we've titled it, The Offensive Compassion of God. Can you excuse me for a minute? I'm just going to move my gear around a bit here. As we work through this book, you will see how the title relates powerfully to what happened in the aftermath of that tragedy in Pennsylvania. Now, you might know the story of Jonah. It's an odd narrative with some weird twists and turns involving a man spending three days in the belly of a fish. It's a very short book, but if you'll pardon the pun, there's so much going on under the surface. 
Theologians talk about this book and how it's an anchor for the whole of the Old Testament. Now, the Old Testament can be challenging. It can leave us with questions. It's easy to ignore or run away from. As a church, we spent quite a lot of 2019 trying to better read and understand the whole Bible and how it all works together, including significant time digging into the Old Testament. Because so much of what I've written in there, no matter how challenging, points forward to the coming of Jesus. There's a quote here from Tim Mackey of the Bible Project. He said this, the irony and history of the Jesus movement is that many Christians do not know what to do with the Old Testament. It's painting a picture and a job description for the Messiah. Now I know a few of us have already commented that this book has impacted us personally. And so we're taking the next few weeks to dig into Jonah. And that's a book that we never actually looked at when we did our year of biblical literacy. It's a great story to tell your kids and grandkids at bedtime. But actually, there's so much more to the story of Jonah. This book is so rich. There's so much to dig into. In fact, honestly, I've rewritten this talk about five times this week. I've had to leave some stuff out. So what I'm going to do is today I'm going to give you the basics. But later on today, I'm also going to record a further short session with some extra material in for those who might be interested in just digging a bit deeper. It will literally just be me talking in a few slides. For those who are interested, I'll put it out on Facebook later on tonight. But as I said, in many ways, the book of Jonah is a microcosm for the Old Testament. And so naturally, you won't be surprised to find out that this story also points forward to Jesus. We used to have a book that we read with our kids called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It works through key characters in the Old Testament and it points out um, just gently how each of their stories foreshadows the oncoming saviour Jesus. I love the book's tagline. It says, every story whispers his name. And that's true of Jonah as well. This book of Jonah in many ways foreshadows the coming of Jesus. And so by the end of the next four or five weeks, our aim is to have really grasped the kindness of God, how he reaches out to those who are in deep trouble and distress with his immense compassion and how we can hear the name of Jesus whispered through this quirky and slightly off the wall story. Excuse me one second. For anyone who wants to dig a bit deeper into any Bible book or theme, I highly recommend The Bible Project as a great place to start. These guys are amazing. They have all kinds of tools to help non-academics understand the Bible in a more deep way. They've got a website, they've got a whole bunch of videos, short and accessible podcasts and other resources. Um, and they have an overview graphic and video for every single book of the Bible. Here's the one for Jonah. In fact, this isn't the whole thing. This is just the banner uh, of it. I, I blew this bit up because I wanted you to see that they describe their overview of Jonah as the subversive story of a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. I mean, that's a subtitle, isn't it? I wanted to call our series that, but Joe said it was too long and a bit a bit quirky and a bit complicated. So we ended up just calling it the offensive compassion of God. But I love that, the subversive story of a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. And, uh, you know, um, the Bible Project guys also make the important point that the way this story is told, it's good to understand the literary style. This is told as satire. Okay, the author of Jonah describes some extreme circumstances and he uses quite a bit of humour and irony 
to get his message across. Here is their whole overall view, overview picture. It's hard to see the detail, so don't look at the detail for now. That's not why I'm showing it to you. Um, although what you can do, they make a video which goes through this whole thing section by section. It's about 10 minutes long and uh, it's on the internet. You can Google it by just literally um, Googling Jonah Overview Bible Project. Jonah Overview Bible Project, and you will find the video. Um, but just, sorry, Chris, just put that slide back on for me because there's a lot of detail. I want to show you the four sections and how the book naturally breaks down into four chapters that you can see uh, the outline of on that uh, on this image. Um, they've got a kind of symmetrical pattern. You've got chapters one and three, which is uh, Jonah's, uh, they're the narrative. That's Jonah's interactions. The first one's with the sailors. The second one is with the Ninevites. And then you've got chapters two and four, which by contrast are prayers. They're conversations between Jonah and God. We're going to start with chapter one today, and then Paul is going to pick up on chapter two next week. And we're going to read the whole of Jonah chapter one, and I'm going to read it in the English standard version of the Bible. Please bear with me. This version of the Bible doesn't sort of flow as well as some of the others but the translation is closer to the original Hebrew which is important for some of the things I want to say later and so it's going to come up on your slides but you uh, you might also want to look it up um, and have it open on your phone or if you've got a bible with you just to have it open we're going to read through Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying arise go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know upon on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then he said to them, what shall we do to you? Sorry. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quieten down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea and then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. How do we make sense of this story? 
As well as the Bible Project Overview, which I mentioned, I also want to just flag up one other tool which help us, which will help us as we dig into this story or indeed any story in the Bible. And that tool has got a fancy name which you don't have to remember. It's called Intertextuality. But a better way of talking about it is like ancient hyperlinks. You see, when you're studying any Bible text, it's important to remember that there are always key words and phrases that have been chosen by the author for a specific reason, because they cross-reference with a different story in a different Bible book and add context and meaning to the current story. Now, the Bible is absolutely full of these cross-references. They are like ancient hyperlinks. Now, hyperlink is a modern computer term. It just simply means a link that enables you to jump quickly from one piece of data to another on a website or an online document. They are very much part of our lives. You will have clicked on several just to be watching this service this morning. Well, these ancient links were very familiar to an Israelite audience who would know their scriptures pretty well. So they'd hear a phrase and they would immediately make the mental jump to call to mind another character or another situation which would reinforce the impact of this current story. This literature was designed to work in this way. And if we don't access that, then we're missing out on a lot of the sort of subtext and meaning that's going on in any passage. But the links aren't always obvious in our English translations. Although if you want to find out, most study Bibles will highlight the main ones. And I highly recommend anybody who's looking to get into this a bit more. I recommend the ESV, English Standard Version, Study Bible, which flags up the cross references in the notes. Um, the online version is brilliant because it has literal hyperlinks uh, to make studying any passage easy because you can jump to the references in the different parts of the Bible. And so with that in mind, here are three key references in the introduction to this story of Jonah that I want to flag up right now, because each of these links would flag up some context for their original intended audience, which otherwise we might miss. One is the word Jonah, one is the word Nineveh, that great city, and one is the word Tarshish. So Jonah first, the character of Jonah outside of this book is only mentioned once in the Old Testament, one other place in 2 Kings 14 where he gives a dodgy prophecy to a bad king. So right at the start of this book, there's a question mark over Jonah's track record as a prophet. In fact, there's a question mark over his character. When the original audience heard his name, the prophet Jonah, the first thought they would have is, oh, him. We're not sure about him. That's interesting and it's important to know as we go into this uh, into this story. The second one that flags up is Nineveh or as it's modern in modern day. This is Mosul in Iraq. But Nineveh back in the day was described with this specific phrase, that great city. Now, while it might be a big and impressive city in size, that's not what the text is getting at. He's used that phrase great city for a specific reason, because it's only actually used one other time in the Old Testament outside of the book of Jonah. It's back in Genesis 10, where it's linked with the founding of the cities of Babylon, which are known in the Bible for their paganism and their wickedness. Babylon is the nation that captured Israel and took it into exile. And so symbolically through the Bible, the term Babylon has come to mean more than just a physical place, but any place that stands directly against God and his values. And so when the writer of Jonah describes Nineveh as that great city, which he does four times in this book, he's making a very clear hyperlink back to Babylon and pointing out just how evil and wicked and godless this place Nineveh really is. And then the third link I want to flag up is the word Tarshish. 
Now remember the text repeats the word Tarshish. It actually says it three times as if to really emphasize this point. He's not going to Nineveh. He's going to Tarshish. For Israelites who hear this story, Tarshish has two significant meanings. One, it's known as an exotic and distant nation. You can see on the map, it's a long way away. But it's also known as a place of gold and precious gems, supplied the great wealth to Solomon's palace. All of that came from Tarshish. It's mentioned several times in the Hebrew Bible, and it represents the ultimate in idolatry. A symbol of people's attempts to recreate the perfection of the Garden of Eden, but in their own image, not in God's image. So when the audience hears that Jonah's running to Tarshish, it's like saying this guy is trying to get as far away from God's presence as is physically and spiritually possible. Can you imagine trying to run away from God? Is that something that you have ever tried to do? Where would we go? What would we do? In my extra section, I'll discuss these references in a bit more detail. But for now, I just want you to know that, you know, all of these references should raise questions immediately. This is a dodgy prophet called by God to preach against an evil city who instead runs as far away from God's presence as possible the other way. What is going on in this book? And the rest of this chapter deals what happens on the ship between Jonah and the sailors in the middle of this dramatic storm. Now you might think that Jonah being a prophet of God who hears from God and speaks on his behalf would have realised why this storm had come upon them and would have acted accordingly and quickly to put things right. But as we see in the next few verses, it's actually the sailors, not Jonah, who tried to do the right thing. For a bunch of rough pagan sailors, they seem remarkably spiritually aware. Whereas in contrast, Jonah seems to be remarkably spiritually dull. And what I've got here is I've got a table um, that's a sort of Bible study table, but it's just the quickest and simplest way to show, to contrast between the sailors' um, unexpected spiritual awakening, spiritual understanding, and contrasting with Jonah's failure to respond. So have a look at this table, because it, what it does is it tells the story. And following down the left-hand column, we see in verse 5 that the sailors discern divine power at work in the storm. Some, there's something going on here, they say, so they start to call out to their gods, and they sacrifice their livelihood in order to survive. They throw their cargo overboard. What does June, Jonah do meanwhile? Well, Jonah goes below deck to take a nap. In verse 6, the captain notices Jonah's non-participation. He says, hey, you should be part of this. And he urges, urges him. He says, listen, you need to call on your God as well. This prophet of God needs to be reminded by a pagan sailor that he needs to pray to his God for a rescue. And then in verse 7 and 8, Jonah's ignorance, it says, forces the sailors to cast lots to try and discern who is the cause of the storm. And they have to ask many questions to get Jonah to offer any kind of response. Let's look at those verses, specifically verse 8. It says, Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And of what people are you? These sailors are doing everything they can to understand why they're caught in this life-threatening storm. They've already chucked their whole cargo into the sea. They're not out of, so they're completely out of pocket. They're not getting anywhere. They're not appeasing their gods. So they figure, well, it's got to be do something to do with him. What about you, mate? What about you? And his response is strange, isn't it? He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. I don't get 
his response. To me, it feels like he's it's it's he's just quoting the Bible at them. To me, it feels semi-religious, pompous, and evasive, and it's certainly an inadequate answer. And what it leads to is in verse ten, where it says the men were exceedingly afraid, and said to him, said to him, "What is this that you have done?" Because they realised he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. I mean, in these guys' minds, this is a God, Jonah's God, who is big enough to do all of this, to send this storm and keep sending it. Why would you run away from that kind of a God? So this is a central and this is a crucial moment of the whole encounter. And in my bonus section, I'll show you why and how the use of the literary style and language points to that. But this is where the sailors realise that Jonah, who claims to be a follower of Yahweh, the Lord God of heaven and earth, is actually running away from his God. And this is when they start to become really afraid. I mean, I can imagine them thinking to themselves, the reason we're in this life-threatening storm is because of this crazy prophet guy who claims to fear God and yet is actually running away from him. If this Yahweh God had this kind of power, why would you run away? This feels like their spiritual awakening. In just a few verses, they move from being fearful of their lives and calling out to their gods to a sudden and dramatic awareness of the presence of God, the Lord of heaven and earth, Yahweh God. This is the kind of transformation. This kind of transformation is available to anyone who needs it. God is here. His presence is here and his power is available. And this can happen to each and every one of us. God is ready to step into our story. Maybe it's something that scares you, that makes you remember or wake up to who God is. I don't know. Let's see how the rest of this story plays out. Here's the rest of the table. Jonah, the sailors in verse 9 and 10, as I've said, actually fear Yahweh. And they inform Jonah of the madness of his flight. He seems unaware of the contradiction of his words and actions. The sailors have to suggest that he does something to change the situation. What are you going to do? Jonah's idea is to force them to kill him, which, as it says here, places them in danger of blood guilt. He's trying to make them responsible before God. Blood guilt simply means the judgment that would come on them by law for killing a prophet of God. It just makes me wonder how easy is it when we totally screw up to push the responsibility or the blame back onto others rather than face up to that reality ourselves. I think that's what Jonah's trying to do here. And so faced with a genuine dilemma, these sailors first try to row back to shore. The word actually means the same as repent, to turn around and go back. But they can't get back there. And so eventually they realise they're going to have to throw him over and they start to call out to God for forgiveness for killing one of God's prophets. They've made quite a journey. Journey in their understanding of and engagement with God. They've been backed into a corner. They're pleading with forgiveness for what they're about to do. And when reluctantly they do finally throw Jonah overboard, they find that the storm immediately dies down. Their dramatic response at the end of the section in verse 16 is to choose to turn away from their pagan gods and start to follow the God of Israel. It says in verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. That's an unexpected outcome. Maybe in your story with God, you can point to a significant moment of change like this. Maybe it was even dramatic, 
like this. That's not really the point. But what's important here is how they respond to God's revelation of himself and his character to them. And what's important to us is how we respond to God's revelation of him, himself, his power and his character to us. And that is relevant for all of us now, regardless of what might have happened in the past. You know, if God is reaching out to you, then now is a good time to respond. Change is possible. It can start happening right now. This chapter is mostly about God's compassion and mercy for a bunch of innocent sailors. They got caught up in a story, in a dramatic event that wasn't of their own making. And they were seriously afraid for their lives. Even if they did make it home in one piece, they've already lost their economic welfare because they had to chuck the cargo overboard. Why did all this happen? Because of the disobedience of one of God's supposed prophets. Sometimes the situations we find ourselves in are of our own making. But sometimes they are because of the actions of others, which might well have been unfair or unjust. And sometimes those others are people who frankly should have known better. And sometimes those wrong things are done in the name of God and that is really hard. And if that has been your experience, then I just want to say how sorry I am on behalf of God's people. And if you're in that place, we would love to help you. Because God can reach out to you and me just like he reached out to those sailors. For God to punish the sailors because of Jonah's bad behaviour would feel very unfair. And he doesn't. It's not their fault. In his kindness and in his mercy, God reached out to these sailors in their hour of need and he saved them. And although Jonah is, in the, is the main character in this story, in this book, it's actually more about God than it is about Jonah. And as, as we'll see over the next few weeks, the key theme that runs through Jonah is the story, the, sorry, the key theme that runs through the story of Jonah is the limitless compassion of God. And that's actually the story of the whole Bible. The kindness and compassion that God shows towards his people, even though we don't deserve it. You see, God is the ultimate standard of good. All he does is good. He's the source of good in the world. And Wayne Grudem, uh, who's a theologian, breaks that down into three specific attributes of God. God's mercy, which means his goodness towards those in misery and distress. That's what I think we see here with these sailors, God's mercy. God's grace is his goodness towards those who deserve just punishment. And God's patience is his goodness in withholding punishment towards those who sin over a period of time. And all of this is kind of wrapped up into this beautiful psalm, Psalm 103, where it says the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions, our sins from us. These words are picked up in several of the Psalms and they're sung as a worship song to God and we're going to sing them ourselves in just a few moments. But this is the compassion which the Amish man showed and the Amish community showed to the widow of the man who murdered their daughters. This is the compassion that God showed to these sailors who were innocent and got caught up in this and it's the compassion he shows to us. Now that doesn't mean that God doesn't also 
want or need to confront violence, injustice, greed, intolerance and corruption. That does happen. This story starts with God deciding to confront the pagan city of Nineveh for their violence and their wickedness. And we'll find out in later chapters what happens and how that goes. When there is stuff that stands against God's values, he's not afraid to take action. He's not a pushover parent. I mean, what kind of father would ignore the need for justice and just allow their kids to get away with anything? You know, like many parents, Joe and I have learned that while we try to be as gracious as we can, there are times and have been times over the years when our children have had to be reminded of the consequences of their actions. And we aim to be kind, but sometimes those are difficult conversations. And so it is with us and God. Maybe today is a time for a difficult conversation. Just remember, there's always a balance of truth and grace. It's the same in relationships. Proper friends speak the truth to one another. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do for a friend is to tell them, someone you love and care for, is to tell them as gently and kindly as possible that they're wrong or that they're being an ignorant, ignorant, an idiot, or they're just not seeing something. There have been times in my life when people I've really respected have had to have those difficult conversations with me. I remember as a young worship leader, a man came up to me who I really respected. He said, I love your worship, but there's too much of you and not enough of God. At the, at the time, it felt devastating. But it was so helpful because it's so powerful to hear the truth from people that love us. So where does this chapter leave Jonah? Well, he's behaved pretty badly in this uh, chapter. He's really messed things up. He's put innocent lives in danger. He's refused to take responsibility for his actions and he's ended up in the sea. But as you probably know, God hasn't forgotten about him. If this were a Netflix drama, this would be the moment where the credits start to roll. They go down into the sort of corner of the screen and you get the option of watching the next episode within the next 10 seconds. Uh, What's going to happen to Jonah? Is he going to live or die? How's he going to get out of this? Unlike Netflix, you're going to have to tune in next week if you want the... uh, Although, like Netflix, you could also just turn to chapter 2 in the Bible and read it for yourself. But Paul will talk next week about how God's compassion starts to work out in the life of Jonah. But today is really about how God's compassion works out in the life of these sailors. And that kind of salvation is available for us today. That kind of rescue is what God is in the business of. There's a verse in the Bible where Paul says, Now is the day of salvation. So whether we're in a situation of our own making or whether we're in one that's come about through someone else's actions, God is ready to reach out to us. Whatever's going on, if we're in need, he is present and he wants to get involved. Maybe it's an economic situation, a relationship problem, a family issue or a health challenge. God is waiting to step in. If you have deliberately run away like Jonah, I want you to know that there's always a way back to God. We'll find out what happens to Jonah next week. But you don't have to wait till next week to start stepping back towards God. You can do it right now. If we know that we've taken steps that just weren't wise, if we know that we've acted in a way that we knew was wrong, I want to remind you that forgiveness is available and God's compassion is there and he's ready to reach out to us. Maybe we feel like we're too bad for God to love us, gone too far, we're too guilty. The story of the Bible, the story of our lives, the story of Jonah is that There is a God who is good and he loves us and he wants to help. Our founding pastor at Winchester Vineyard, Ginny Cryer, used to declare regularly that this is the church of the second chance. And she'd always follow it up with and the third and the fourth chance. And that is just as true today as it was when she's around. It's never too late to come back to God.